Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to my most inquisitive audience. I want to talk a little bit today about some of the new information that we're learning about life, about humanity, physically speaking that is, and about all living things. Our ability to analyze living cells within a laboratory has grown enormously in the last few decades and even just the last few years. And the set of information we have available to us about what is going on inside a living cell has grown astronomically. For a very long time, we've had the notion of genes. Everybody's heard about genes in your DNA. And it used to be thought that that was really all the DNA was there for was to house those genes. Genes are the portion of the DNA molecule that are used to code for a protein. They contain a recipe, and the cell uses that recipe and builds a protein molecule. Proteins are enormously complex molecules. Well, DNA is a really enormous and complex molecule. Well, as we learned more about DNA itself, it turned out that the portion of the DNA that actually contains genes that are used to build proteins, these actual little recipes, if you will, only comprise a very small percentage of the total of the DNA. I believe it's something like about 2%. And it was believed that the rest of it basically does nothing. And this was explained by evolutionists as evolutionary leftovers. The remnants within our DNA were supposed to be stuff that used to do things in the past when we weren't humans or maybe weren't even primates, maybe weren't even mammals. Our whole evolutionary history all the way back to an original living cell. Get that evolutionary mindset and keep it in mind. The full contents of our DNA supposedly arose by unguided natural means. No designer, no plan, no forethought, none of that, just chemistry. And a bit of luck. So somehow an original cell comes to life and it has some DNA and that DNA specifies the properties of the cell, right? And the cell is able to reproduce. Then you have mutations tweaking the DNA. In essence, it doesn't reproduce exactly correctly. Perhaps a gene gets duplicated, and now you have two genes able to do the same thing, and then one of those now redundant genes gets tweaked again and again. In essence, it gets broken. It no longer can perform its original function, but it doesn't matter because it was redundant anyway. Remember, it was just a copy. And this mutated copy of a gene might be called a pseudogene. You know, it kind of looks like one, but it doesn't do anything. Well, eventually enough changes occur to it, and lo and behold, this pseudogene becomes functional. And it has the ability to do something brand new. The cells containing this new gene now have some new capability. And if this new function or capability is advantageous, then natural selection can select for it. Meaning, cells that don't have this new capability die off more, 
Cells that do have it reproduce more. This goes on for a while, and then eventually this new capability, residing within this new gene, exists throughout the entire population of these cells. That is the basic story as to how neo-Darwinian evolution occurs. And so when it was discovered that only a small part of our genome, the DNA, actually codes for proteins, and the rest of it didn't do anything as far as we knew at that point, evolutionists quickly said, well, of course, that's what we expect. That's leftover junk from our evolutionary history. And very visible evolutionists, such as Richard Dawkins, used this idea of this leftover junk DNA as evidence against the notion of an intelligent designer and specifically against the notion of the biblical God. In fact, just a few years ago, 2009, in The Greatest Show on Earth, his book, he reported that pseudogenes were useful for embarrassing creationists. He wrote, It stretches even their creative ingenuity to make a convincing reason why an intelligent designer should have created a pseudogene, a gene that does absolutely nothing and gives every appearance of being a superannuated version of a gene that used to do something, unless he was deliberately setting out to fool us. Dawkins also said, Leaving pseudogenes aside, it is a remarkable fact that the greater part, 95% in the case of humans, of the genome might as well not be there for all the difference it makes. These are fairly typical statements by Dawkins. He insists that any intelligent person looking at the world around us and looking at life and looking at what goes on in a cell would absolutely conclude this is purely natural and evolution is clearly factual. Those creationists are just plain ignorant or potentially evil in his words. Unfortunately, Dawkins has a problem, and his problem is science. And in just a moment, we'll listen to a brief statement that Dawkins made in a BBC-sponsored debate just in 2012, discussing the results of the ENCODE project. In today's show, we're taking a look at some of what we've learned recently about DNA, and we'll discuss some implications of this, we just reviewed the fact that in 2009, Richard Dawkins was adamant that the vast majority, 95% of the human DNA, might as well not be there as it does nothing, and that this was, of course, what evolution expected. As I mentioned, unfortunately for Dawkins, scientists continue to do research and we continue to learn actual facts. The ENCODE project is the Encyclopedia of DNA Elements. And it is detected that the vast majority of the human genome has evidence of some type of function, completely unexpected by evolutionists. But then again, they may like to rewrite history. Let's listen to what Richard Dawkins said in a recent BBC debate discussing these results. At the very beginning of this debate with Britain's chief rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, Dawkins was clobbered over the head with the following information. We all knew that until recently, 98% of the genome was dismissed as junk DNA. And actually, that 98% that people thought was junk 
isn't junk at all. It's absolutely essential to the maintenance of life. Now listen very closely to what Dawkins says regarding what we've learned in the ENCODE project, and that is that the majority of DNA appears to be quite functional. Here's what he said. Creationists who are jumping on it because they think that's awkward for Darwinism. Um, quite the contrary, of course. It's exactly what a Darwinist would hope for, is to find, is to find usefulness in, uh, in, in, the, in the living world. By the way, it is a very fascinating fact that the chief rabbi has, the, ev the evidence he's given, that um, whereas we thought that only a minority of the, the genome was doing something, namely that minority which actually codes for protein, um, uh, and, and now we find that, that actually the majority of it's doing something. What it's doing is calling into, into action the protein-coding genes. So you can think of the protein-coding genes as being the sort of toolbox of subroutines, which is pretty much common to all mammals. I mean, all mice and men have the same number, roughly speaking, of protein-coding genes, and that's always been... A, a bit of a blow to the self-esteem of humanity. But what the point is, that that was just the subroutines that are called into being. The program that's calling them into action is, is, the, is the, the rest which had previously been written off as junk. Well, Richard Dawkins is correct. The rest had been previously written off as junk by evolutionists such as Richard Dawkins. Creationists had long predicted that function would be discovered for the majority of the genome. However, we live in a fallen world, and creationists recognize that the genome that we have today is not the same as what Adam and Eve had. It has several thousand years of degradation, and we do have accumulated mutations and errors. There's a growing number of genetic diseases being identified, all of that is part of the creationist view of the world, so that is not a problem either. Often, evolutionists will lampoon creationists with the following straw man. They will imply that everything around us is supposed to be exactly the way it was when God created it. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. That ignores a little event called the fall and the effects of something called a curse. So just know, creationists do not believe that what we're looking at right now is exactly the way it was when God created it. Rather, it is highly degraded. And in fact, the biblical account points to a future restoration, back to something like that original condition where there were no genetic errors, for example. There were no diseases. In fact, there was no death. And we will have a direct face-to-face -face relationship with God himself. That's the picture that the Bible presents, a restoration to things more like it was at the beginning. So just know this straw man idea that what we're looking at is what creationists believe God created in the first place, absolutely false, frequently raised straw man so it could be burned down. That's a rhetorical, fallacious way to debate, and it's just a way to confuse you. But I know that won't work because I know you are intelligent, skeptical, free-thinking, and you will think for yourself and you will evaluate the arguments presented to you. At least I hope so. Let's look back at part of what Dawkins said. I know it was a bit difficult to understand him, but 
Fortunately, we have a transcript, and we're going to look closely at a couple of things. He started off noting that some creationists are jumping on the results of the ENCODE project because they think that's awkward for Darwinism. He says, quite the contrary, it's exactly what a Darwinist would hope for, to find usefulness in the living world. That's actually a comical statement, considering his own previous statements. I read those earlier in this broadcast. He made a point of insisting the DNA was filled with useless junk, and that was solid evidence for evolution and against creation. Now he says it's exactly what a Darwinist would hope for. Talk about rewriting history. This goes on all the time. As science moves on and the evolutionary expectations are dashed against the rocks of knowledge, they simply rewrite the story, and the new knowledge becomes what evolution would expect. Look for this trend. It occurs all over the place. Then Dawkins goes on to describe fairly accurately what we've learned about how the genome works. And I'm using this clip because he uses a particularly appropriate analogy. At least I think it's appropriate. He describes the idea that this small part of the genome, the minority of it that actually codes for proteins, is sort of a, quote, toolbox of subroutines, which is pretty much common to all mammals. He mentions mice and men have the same number. We're talking about genes now, roughly speaking, of protein-coding genes. And then he says that's always been a bit of a blow to self-esteem of humanity. Well, actually, it was a huge surprise because the gene-centric evolutionary view of life thought man would have a whole lot more genes than we actually do, since we're more complex than a bacteria, for example. It was a total shock to find out that we only had something like 20,000 genes. But I do like this analogy. I do consider genes to be a toolbox of subroutines. They do something very specific. They produce a highly specific protein, which is then used to do a variety of things within the cell. Dawkins goes on to note the genes are really just the subroutines. Then he says, the program that's calling them into action is the rest of the genome, which had previously been written off as junk. That's a very good way to think about it. Consider the fact that gene A could produce protein A. Well, would it do you any good if your cell produced protein A at the maximum possible rate permanently? No, that would kill the cell. There has to be something that coordinates and controls the production of these proteins. And furthermore, takes the proteins, which are the result of running the subroutine, and puts them in the right place at the right time with all the right other materials so that they can perform the function for which they were designed. Oops, I gave away my bias. Cells scream design. Even Dawkins said they look designed. Of course, he thought that was a just an appearance. They appear designed, but they're not designed. That's Dawkins' perspective. My perspective and that of all creationists and most ID proponents is, yes, cells look designed because they are designed. But I want to talk a little bit more about this notion of genes as subroutines and expand it a bit to the notion of a computer executing a computer program, a software program, 
which is, after all, nothing but organized information, we're really learning that life itself consists primarily of the expression of highly specific and complex information. That information is expressed physically, but the information itself is not a physical entity. More about this in a moment. Let's take a few moments and consider some features of living cells, some of the remarkable things that we've learned recently about what goes on inside cells as they compare to software programs executed within various computer systems. We've already mentioned the notion of genes as subroutines. That is, they do something very specific. They code for a specific protein. When you invoke the gene or express the gene, as they say, it's the equivalent of calling the subroutine. You express a gene to produce the associated protein. You call a subroutine in software to execute it, getting whatever products it produces as an output. So that analogy works pretty darn well. And you can buy libraries of subroutines that perform various types of functions. The existence of particular subroutines or an entire set of subroutines tells you nothing at all about what an application truly does. It can give you an idea of the capabilities of an application, but it won't tell you what it does. You could have two different software programs that do very different things that present a user display, for example, on a PC and look nothing like each other, and yet they use identical sets of subroutines. This is one of the reasons why the gene-centric view of life is falling in disarray. It simply doesn't work. It used to be claimed you are your genes. We now know that is far from the truth. The interesting part of applications are the part that actually decides when to call the subroutines and what to do with the outputs to the subroutines. This is the portion of software programs that are different between every different program. And it appears that part of the information necessary to decide when to express genes, that is, when to call the subroutines, part of this is in other portions of the DNA that erroneously were thought to be junk. But it also appears that part of it may be elsewhere in the cell. We don't even know where it resides. Did you know that your living cells can actually modify their own DNA? They can actually change the content of the DNA. And in particular, they can perform DNA repair. There's a set of processes that identify and correct damage to DNA molecules. Why is this necessary? These molecules are very complex and they are susceptible to changes due to environmental factors like ultraviolet light or radiation. And some articles report as many as one million individual molecular lesions per cell per day, and that many of these lesions cause structural damage to the DNA molecule. And so you have this pretty much constantly active DNA repair process going on. Well, I used to work on military software systems, embedded processors that were stuck inside of systems, and in particular I worked on embedded weapon systems at one point, the idea that those computers are making decisions that can cause something to explode 
means you want to be darn good and sure those computers work correctly. And so we had functions that would look for damage to the software program because the memory in computers can also be changed by environmental factors like radiation. And so the memory components in these embedded military processors actually had separate hardware functions that scanned the memory looking for errors. They called it error detection and correction. In fact, even computer servers use special memory that contains this type of error detection and correction logic as opposed to your typical desktop PC or client workstation. Well, why is that? Well, if a single PC has a memory fault and it causes a program to crash, well, that's unfortunate for the user of that PC. If that happens on a server that has hundreds or thousands of users dependent upon that server functioning correctly, it's a much bigger impact, and so we use more expensive, more complex memory circuitry that includes error detection and correction. And now we know our cells have error detection and correction to keep track of problems within the DNA. Well, I've been around doing software long enough that I've actually written assembly language programs. Most programmers have never touched assembler, nor would they want to. But when we're talking to a hardware device, sending physical signals to a device, it's often important to control the timing of those signals. That is, they can't come too quickly in some cases. And so in some systems, we actually controlled the timing by including a series of no-ops. That is, computer instructions that don't do anything other than consume the CPU's time. And we would control how many no-ops we put in particular places within the program to control the timing of the execution. It looks like there may be features like that as well within the DNA. Some of these long, repeated segments that have unclear function, I've seen some references that imply they seem to control the timing of the expression of the genes around these long, repeated segments. That makes perfect sense to me, having written software that did something very, very analogous to that. We also used to write software that was self-modifying. We would sometimes deliberately modify the instructions to adjust the execution of the program. So something occurs, we go down one particular path, and we decide to modify how other portions of the program are going to behave now. Did you know cells do the same thing? They actually adjust the execution of the DNA, if you will. They adjust the expression of the genes by tagging the DNA molecule, actually attaching little molecules to it that are used by the cellular machinery to either suppress the expression of a gene or enhance it. And hot off the presses is the knowledge that some regions of DNA that produced long, non-coding RNA molecules, that is, these RNA molecules didn't result in a protein, and so the DNA segments that produce these long, non-coding RNAs were considered junk. Well, we now know these long, non-coding RNAs modify the expression of chromosomes. They actually physically wrap themselves around portions of chromosomes and either suppress or enhance the expression of the genes therein. So they are incredibly important, and we're just beginning to get a glimpse as to how they work and what they do. 
I've been thinking for a long time that we're going to reach a point fairly soon where we're going to say, yeah, genes are there, but those are the least interesting and the least complex part of what's going on. Those are just the low-level subroutines. Now, is it surprising for a designer to reuse subroutines across different creatures? Not at all. In fact, in fact, you could say humans are at least semi-intelligent designers, and when we write computer programs, we absolutely reuse subroutines. So the existence of similar or identical genes across various creatures in no way implies that this must have occurred from common ancestry. It is absolutely consistent with a common designer. And when data is consistent with two different alternatives, it is not a discriminator between them, is it? Once again, when you look into the details, there is no physical information out there in the world, true information, that contradicts the notion of a biblical creator. SeeCreationMythOrMiracle.com 